Psalm 139 to the choir master, a psalm of David. He writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall guide me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious are your thoughts uh, to me, are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete Hatred, I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word, that he might teach us by his spirit what he would have us to learn this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that, uh, as your word tells us, uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we ask once again that you would teach us your word, fill us with your Holy Spirit, work in us what's pleasing in your sight this day, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Uh, Teach us, make us grow in our faith. Uh, make us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And for we ask in his name, amen. Well, given uh, the, the events of last week, or the week before, I guess you'd say, with the Supreme Court and their decision, uh, long-awaited uh, overturning of Roe versus Wade, uh, I thought this would be a good Sunday for us uh, to take a look at this text, at least briefly, that uh, Roe versus Wade, you know, some people, I've even seen Christians this week, I've seen uh, Christian and even Reformed, ostensibly Reformed uh, people and websites, I won't name them for, for their own sakes, uh, who have been kind of uh, telling believers, you know, simmer down a little bit, don't get so excited about this thing, uh, which I think is just a horrible posture to take. I can't imagine... 
you know, if we had been alive, uh, God willing, you know, what is it, 160 years ago, my math isn't very good, but when slavery was abolished, would any, would any sincere believer have had uh, something wrong with them enough to say, well, let's not get too carried away celebrating it. There are people who are upset right now. We would have all been celebrating and rightly so. You think about Roe versus Wade, uh, that uh, unjust legal fiction, that previous ruling that was foisted upon this country, that fabricated from whole cloth a supposed constitutional right to murder, uh, which is nothing less than the, the, the murder of babies in the womb. We would call it infanticide. Uh, I couldn't help when I think of that to think of this psalm and what it tells us about uh, that, that thing. You know, that, that may, I don't even think I should say arguably, that Roe versus Wade was the most unjust ruling in the history of our nation. It was an embarrassment, an abomination, 60-plus million babies killed. Like, I, don't, don't tell me not to be uh, excited about, uh, even if it's a small win, uh, it's a win that God granted by his grace, may it be uh, overruled in such a way that abortion becomes illegal and unthinkable in our country by God's grace. Well, seeing as we have often made it our practice here on the first Sundays of the month to preach through the Psalms, sometimes the Proverbs and elsewhere, uh, I thought this month would be a good time as any to preach on this great Psalm of David. I don't know if you have favorite Psalms. I'm guessing if you've been a believer for a long time, you, there's a number of them that jump off the page at you that if, if I were to say, you know, what are your five favorite Psalms? I'm guessing some of us in this room, this one would be on your list. You know, certainly Psalm 23 and others, but Psalm 139 uh, is an amazing passage of Scripture for all kinds of reasons. There might not be a passage in the Bible more suited to this occasion uh, than this Psalm. There's probably not a more pro-life text in the Scriptures than Psalm 139, none other that speaks so clearly uh, and directly on the issue of the sanctity of life in the womb. And so this morning, Lord willing, we're going to see what the psalm has to teach us about these and other, other issues, at least in, in, in part briefly. The sanctity of life in the womb is not really the, the primary message. Having said that, it's probably not the primary message of this psalm, but it certainly has a great deal to teach us, a great deal of application in that regard. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary writes this, these verses plainly teach the individuality of a child while it is still in its mother's womb. David is not writing about abortion, of course. Nothing could be farther from his mind. But no one can read these verses thoughtfully today without considering their obvious bearing on this important contemporary problem. You know, it's, it's funny, but it's not without reason. Um, you know, if you ever have been to my office and you look at all the dusty books on the shelf, all the commentaries. Maybe you think, wow, why would he want to read all those? Um, you know, all, most of the commentaries I have, not all of them, most of them are, are rather old or they were originally written. Maybe they're new editions of old, old commentaries written centuries ago. And, you know, when you read those commentaries from Spurgeon and elsewhere, other writers uh, of previous generations, uh, you know, if you were to read the, their comments on Psalm 139, you would see obviously there was a uh, almost a complete absence of any mention of this kind of a thing. But why is that? This kind of thing was nowhere on the radar screen. It was, it was nowhere in their deepest imaginations that this could be something we'd be dealing with at any point. So it's only the newer writers like Dr. Boyce and others who even bring it up. But they bring it up with good, with good reason. Uh, this psalm, as you've seen as I was reading it, maybe as you've read it before, has a lot to teach us about a number of things, including the attributes or perfections of God, 
especially his omniscience, that he is all-knowing, his omnipresence, that he is fully present everywhere in the universe, and even his great omnipotence and sovereignty over all things. So these are just a few of the things, uh, Lord willing, that we're going to look at this morning from our text. And one of the things we have to be careful not to miss, uh, we don't want to miss the points that David himself is making here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You know, when you read these things about the attributes of God, even in a psalm like this, you know, what we're reading in Psalm 139 is not a cold, detached listing of the divine attributes for their own sake. They're not just kind of listed for our own, you know, um, trivia or abstract contemplation or, or curiosity. Uh, think of, again, remember what this is. This is a psalm. We actually sang a, a version of a psalm this morning. It's a psalm. It's a song. It's meant to be read and prayed and sung. And sometimes we don't look very much and don't think very much about the titles, the ones that are given by the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, for, for some of these psalms. And what does this one say? To the choir master, a psalm of David. What does it imply? It's meant to be sung. These are truths that beg to be sung and not just studied and, and thought about. And so this is a psalm. It's meant to be sung in praise to God. And all throughout this psalm of David, he writes as one, and maybe we have a hard time identifying with this. I hope that we will learn to do it more. David, when he writes this psalm, writes as one who's standing in awe and wonder of God. When he thinks about these, these attributes or, or perfections of God, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his power, his sovereignty over all things, he, he can't, it's almost like he can't contain himself. He's so in awestruck of God's wonder and who God is that that's where this psalm uh, pours forth from his pen. He stands in awe of the God who is his Savior and Lord, who takes such watchful care over him all the days of his life, even before he was made, even before he was born. He tells us God took notice of him and was taking care of him. And so he reminds us that this kind of knowledge of God that he speaks of, he says it's too wonderful for him. It was so high, he says, or, or lofty, verse 6, that he couldn't attain to it. It's like, you know, that there's a saying, I forget who wrote this first or where I first read it. I want to say it was either John Stott or J.I. Packer. But he said something like, uh, you know, every preacher, every, every good preacher, our reach exceeds our grasp. In other words, we preach to ourselves first. We're preaching. People say you preach to the choir. We preach to the mirror first, or we should. Um, David's kind of preaching to the mirror. He's saying, this is, I'm writing all this down for everybody in posterity to sing and read and pray over. But it was too lofty for him. He himself was unable to attain to it. Why? Because God is incomprehensible. We can know God truly. We can understand God truly. But we can't know and understand God uh, comprehensively because he's God and we are finite creatures. Verse 14, he considers the work of God in, quote, Knitting him together in his mother's womb. Uh, and what's, what is his response to God to that? When he thinks about the work of God, even in creating him, even making him and knitting him together inside his mother's womb. Look at verse 13. He says, I praise you, or verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So praise was the response that David gave when he thought and contemplated about the work of God, even inside the womb of his mother, in knitting him together and making him the person that he was to be. 
Well, the first thing, looking at this psalm in order, the first thing that David speaks of here in this psalm is what we often refer to as the omniscience of God. That's just a fancy way of saying that God knows all things. The psalmist tells us elsewhere in Psalm 147.5, I'm reading the King James Version of this. He says, Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Infinite. We, we, it's one of those words that we all know what it means, but we really don't, can't comprehend it. It's beyond our ability to understand. But God's understanding is infinite in measure. Proverbs 15.3 connects God's omniscience and his omnipresence together, saying the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Hebrews 4.13 says, the, there the writer of Hebrews says, uh, more about the eyes of the Lord as the writer of Proverbs did. It says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's something to think about. We will all give account to God. And what is, there's no pulling the wool over God's eyes. He sees and knows everything. In some ways, the omniscience of God, the fact that he knows and sees all things in all the universe is you could say it's the main theme of the entire psalm. But it's clearly the focus of verses 1 through 6. Look there again where David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So David says all these things about God's knowledge of all things, especially all things about himself, about, about David. And look at the things he says. You've searched me, verse 1, and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. God knows his thoughts. He says, you discern my thoughts from afar. He knows David's path. The, the way that uh, wherever David went in his life, he knows his lying down. He is acquainted, all these different words for knowing. He's acquainted with all of David's ways and all of David's words, his thoughts, his ways, his words. He says, even before a word is on my tongue, God knows everything. When we go to pray, we often say this, God, you know our needs. You know what we're going to pray for. Before we, you know the things we forget to pray for. God knows it, everything about what David is going to say, even before he says it, and that is true of us as well. Notice that David's focus, his, his thoughts on God's omniscience is very practical, and it's very personal to himself. He doesn't just talk about these things in some abstract, impersonal way. He shows us how it applies to us, how it applied to him, how it applies to each one of us who are believers today. It's not the bare omniscience of God in some general way that David has in mind, but specifically the omniscience of God as it applies to David himself and his relationship to God. And that is how David is teaching us to think about these things as well. Notice again what he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. He doesn't just say, God, you know everything. He says, you've searched me out and known everything about me inside and out. God knew David's comings and goings. He discerns his thoughts from afar. He was acquainted with all of his ways and all of his words, even the things that he hadn't quite said yet. 
And then as if to cap the whole thing off, David summarizes the effect of all this in verse 5 when he describes how God's omniscience applied to him. What did it mean that God searched David out and knew him the way he did and all these things? He sums it up in verse 5 by saying, You, God, hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. It's like he's surrounded by God on all sides so that nothing can touch him without God allowing it to do so. And of course, that's what the Bible teaches. He will not allow a hair of your head to fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father in heaven. Easy to to say that in the abstract, harder to affirm that and hold to that when something is going on in your life. He was surrounded by God and protected by God on every side. That's what filled David's heart and mind with awe and wonder. That was the knowledge that was too wonderful for him and too lofty for him to attain. Dr. Boyce goes on and says, For the psalmist, God's knowledge is not a threat. It is a refuge. We should think of it the same way. David's not complaining here. He's praising. He's saying it's a good thing. God knows everything about me. There's nothing about my life, even my sins, although he doesn't mention that in particular here that shocks or surprises God he knew all David's sins and things when he chose him at the before the foundation of the world and set his love upon him to save him for the believer in Christ the omniscience of God and the fact that our God and Savior knows all things about all things and even knows all things about us should fill us with awe and with a great sense of comfort that our God knows us that well. What about the unbeliever and the unrepentant? A little bit of a different story, I might say. For them, this is a frightful thing to think about, or at least it should be. As we've already seen those words of Hebrews 4.13, those words should stand as a sobering warning to the unrepentant and the unbelieving. It says, again, and no creature is hidden from his sight, from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's almost as if the writer of Hebrews is sort of pointing us back to the Garden of Eden. Remember that Adam and Eve, when they fell in the Garden of Eden, fell into sin, ate the forbidden fruit, and they realized their eyes were open, they realized they were naked, and so what did they do? They hid. It says they tried to, it doesn't say they tried, they tried to hide from the presence of the Lord, and they sewed fig leaves together to hide their nakedness. Can you hide from God? Adam and Eve found out the hard way, didn't they? Now, God, you know, sometimes God in Scripture asks questions. They're rhetorical questions. They're not for him. They're for you, right? He he walks in the garden. Where are you? Oh, we hid. Why would you hide? We were naked. Who told you you were naked? All these things. God knew where they were. God didn't ask because he didn't know where they were. But think about that. They tried to hide from God. and, And we do the same thing today. Unbelievers The unrepentant still do the same thing today. Before you and I believed, we did the same thing. We tried, thought we could hide from God. Thought we could, you know, if nobody else sees our sins, God won't notice it. Why would God notice? But God sees all things. Nothing uh, is hidden from his sight, and all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And we must give an account to God for every careless word, Jesus says. It says, by your words you'll be justified, by your words you'll be Condemned, even the words we say when no one else is around. But God sees and hears all things. How many unbelievers today kind of do the same thing Adam and Eve did? They try to hide from God. They try to cover their own sin and guilt with all kinds of other things, even religion. 
Even false religion, even works, they try to cover these things up. But none of those things are ever suitable to cover up our sin, are they? It's not in our service today, but there's an old hymn that we sing. I think we sang it a few weeks ago. What can wash away my sin? What's the answer? You don't have to sing it, but nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Christ himself that covers our sin and nothing else will do. God himself has provided the atonement for our sins in sending his only begotten son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we have failed to live and to die on the cross in our place that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be justified and reconciled to God. Well, the next thing that David turns our attention to in this psalm is, is closely re- related to the first, and it's the omnipresence of God. That is to say that God is everywhere. There is no place in all the universe where God is not. More than that, there is no place in all the universe where God is not present in all of his fullness. It's not like he's fully, fully present here in church and then kind of sort of halfway present somewhere else. He's All of him, in some sense, is present everywhere. There is no place in all of his created universe where God is not fully present. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 23, verses 23 to 24. God says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. You think about Jonah. Remember God told him to go preach against Nineveh, that great city. And what did Jonah do? Nope, I'm going to go the other. You want me to go this way? I'm going to go this way. And he tried to get away from the presence of the Lord. It's what the text actually says. He fled away from the presence of the Lord. He went down into the, the hull of the boat as if God wasn't down in the hull of the boat, as if God could not see him. And it became very apparent to Jonah that God, God saw him. You know, our kids still like to play hide-and-seek in the house. You know, Jonah thought he could play hide-and-seek, and he found a really good hiding spot. And you ever play hide-and-seek with your kids or your younger siblings, and you know, their feet are sticking out under, the, under the, you know, the, the, the carpet or the blanket or whatever it is they're hiding under, the, the, the uh, curtains or out of that is. Uh, and you see them, and you kind of get a chuckle like, he doesn't think I see their feet. God saw everything. God knew exactly where Jonah was, and he sent a storm to let him know. And then sent a great fish to save him from the storm as well. David speaks at length of this perfection of God's omnipresence in verses 7 through 12. He says this, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold, uh, shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, for night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God sees all and he is everywhere. Now, When David talks about going away from God's spirit and fleeing from his presence, this doesn't mean that David actually wants to do these things. He's just saying, hypothetically, if I were to even try to get away, there's nowhere where you aren't. He's not trying to get away from God. This this psalm was not written in in the, the, the slavish fear of God of an unbeliever. It was written in the familial or loving fear of an adoptive son. That's the spirit in which this, uh, this psalm was written, not the slavish fear of those 
who would want to flee from God in terror because of their sin and his judgment. It's written out of the heart of a son of God, one who's adopted by God's grace in Christ out of love for him. To him, as to every believer, God's providential, constant, watchful presence brings him assurance and comfort. No matter where he goes, his God is with him to lead him, verse 10, and to hold him wherever he goes. That's the point. That's the takeaway for David and for every believer of God's omnipresence that he is everywhere present with us. And look at the vast extent of God's watchful presence over David. He says if he ascends to heaven, or even if he makes his bed in Sheol, which is the place of death, God is there. There probably aren't two more drastic different places that you can imagine, two more opposite extremes than death or hell and heaven. And David says, whichever way I go, if I die, you're there with me. If I'm in heaven, you're there with me as well. One writer has pointed out well that this thing that he says there in verse 8 should fill the unrepentant with fear and dread. And why is it? How many of the unrepentant, those who are hardened in their sin and unbelief, somehow they have got it in their heads that at least when they die, they can escape God's wrath. They can get away from the God whom they hate and with whom they don't want to have to answer to when they die and depart this life. But what does David say? Even if David went to Sheol, the place of death, God is there. Even in death, the unrepentant have no escape from God who is their judge. Oh, that they might repent and live instead, as David even says uh, of himself here in this, in this great psalm. Brothers and sisters, does the thought of God's pervading watchful presence over your life give you great comfort and peace in time of trouble? No matter where you go, no matter what you may be going through at this time, your God is there with you. And even the darkness that looks so dark to you, what does he say? Even the darkness is as light to God. As the writer of the book of Hebrews also says, keep your life, Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And what's the reason he gives? For he, that's God, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's his, that's his cure for discontentment and for the love of money is to remember that God himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. What a comfort, what an encouragement I hope that is uh, with our lot in this life, whatever that may be, that God's omnipresence should be there to care for every believer and he never leaves us or forsakes us. Well, last but not least, uh, we come to verses 13 through 16. We're not going to touch on everything in this psalm, but I couldn't, I couldn't not touch on this. Uh, there in verses 13 through 16, David pens the most wonderful words about God's work and watchful presence, even in the womb of an expectant mother. He's still kind of going on on the same theme of God's watchful omnipresence. This isn't really a new topic he gets into in verse 13. Here we are told, though, of the sanctity of life in the womb, and even that God himself is present and at work there. Look at those verses again, verses 13 to 16. David says there, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame 
was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And we talk about womb to tomb. Like, this is beyond that. Even before he was conceived, God saw his unformed substance. Where does life begin? At conception. Who is the author of life? The Lord God Almighty. Who is the maker of every baby in every womb? God himself. These statements that David makes here in our, in our text are really an extension about his words about God's watchful presence and care in his life. This even extended to David while he was yet in his mother's womb. God was caring for David before he was even born. And that is really the point he is making in some ways. Not only that, but he says God saw his unformed substance, verse 16. I think what he's saying there is he saw David before David was even conceived. He knew David before he was even conceived and set his love upon him, as he tells us in his word elsewhere, before the foundation of the world. Not just that, but he says even all of his days before they were formed for him were what? Were written in God's book long before even one of them came to pass. His whole life, God was working on that before David was even born, setting forth his days and writing them, as it were, in his book. How, how wonderful and sovereign is God in control of our lives? How much does he care for us that he even is involved in making us while we're in the womb, even before then. You know, our age, I think you all know, is filled with a godless culture of death on every side, it seems like sometimes. Uh, we who know the Lord Jesus Christ must affirm the sanctity of life, especially life in the womb, but elsewhere as well. Not only has God commanded us in his word to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1.28 but here in our text, we are told that every baby in the womb is formed and knit together by whom? God himself. It's not some naturalistic process that is without God's activity in it. We who know the Lord Jesus Christ should make it and continue to make it our prayer and our aim that abortion, uh, the abomination that it is, might be outlawed and done away with in our land, even in our state. Our state of California, the people in charge of it, still celebrate this awful thing as if this was something to be proud of. They, they think people should come to California to abort their babies because neighboring states might have outlawed it. What an awful thing to say, may God remove each one of these people from office and judge them if he doesn't grant them repentance. We should make it our aim that this be abolished throughout our land. Uh, not only does the wickedness like abortion greatly displease the Lord, but one of the things I always wonder if people don't remember is that these are the kinds of things that bring God's just judgment and chastisement upon a land. I saw a Christian, a formerly great website, I won't say their name, uh, just this past week, kind of mockingly suggest that celebrating the overturning of Roe versus Wade was, was being a culture warrior. They mocked the idea of, oh, we're, Christians shouldn't be involved in culture wars as if saving millions of lives of, of unborn babies is some side thing unrelated to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As if they don't think God judges nations. God judges nations for far less. 
for all kinds of reasons we should want this to be abolished and removed from our land. You and I should not be apologetic in the slightest for rejoicing over the mercy of God and bringing to pass in his sovereignty this Supreme Court ruling because the highest court in the universe is what caused that ruling to be coming to pass. We should press on. You and I should do that. We should continue to pray that the vile practice of abortion will be cast into the dustbin of history. Think about slavery. Apply the same logic to slavery. By God's grace, thank, thank God and his mercy. That is an unthinkable practice in our land, in all the, the civilized world. And all those years ago, it was finally abolished. It took a lot of bloodshed to do it. We should think of it the same way when it comes to abortion. We should pray and hope and work that this might be in some day, sometime soon, maybe even in our lifetimes, completely unthinkable. That these people that celebrate it so openly would be afraid to do so, would never dream of doing so again. We pray that our children and grandchildren one day would grow up to see a country where this would be thought of in the same terms as slavery is thought of now. One of the worst insults somebody can give even to somebody now is to suggest that they would be somebody who would support slavery. We hope the same thing would be said when it comes to abortion. Let us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, even like David, give praise to God, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. For God's works, even his works in the womb, are wonderful, and we should know it, as David says, know it very well. When we consider the work of God in our lives, even in forming you in the womb and fashioning you and your days, uh, it should fill you with wonder and awe that God would do such a thing and even make someone such as you and me. Do we praise God for his perfections as David does here? And may God searching and knowing us lead to pray the way that David does in, in verses 23 and 24 at the end of the psalm. He says, remember he starts the psalm, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And now what does he do? He comes full circle and prays that God would continue to do the same thing. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, he I didn't mention it much at length in the sermon, except for when I read the text. But God, he talks a lot about judging the wicked towards the end of this psalm. He talks about hating them with a perfect hatred. And we might say to ourselves, boy, that's awfully arrogant, David. That's awfully prideful that you would do such a thing. But look what he does here. He's just talking about sincerely loving God, and he's not claiming sinful, sinlessness. He's saying at the end, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. David knows he still had sin in his heart. David wasn't claiming, oh, God's not going to find anything, because what does he say? See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's praying that God would sanctify him. You know what's still left in there. Root it out. Lead me in the way everlasting. May the fear of God, the right fear of God, lead you and I to pray for God's continuing work in our lives, the work of sanctification by his grace that he might Lead us, as the psalmist says elsewhere, lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Amen.